If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 642. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Where are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. I've got a lot of great classes there to purchase. The newest one is Reading John C. Calhoun. You're going to want that. If you're listening to this podcast before June 4th, 2022, you're going to get a great deal if you're on my email list. So make sure you're on that email list so you can get the coupon to get a great deal on the class. You're not going to want to miss it. It is a great course, and we go through six very important documents that John C. Calhoun wrote. And we talk about them. It's fantastic. So you're going to want it. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. If you're watching this video on YouTube, you can click on that little heart under the video, the super thanks heart, and you can throw a few pennies my way that way. So lots of great ways to support the show financially. As always, though, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Let them know you like it. That's how we grow the audience. That's how we get more people interested in this idea of federalism, which is very important. And it really is the core of the American political experience. There wouldn't be a United States without it. We have to remember that. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day. Send me those show requests too, by the way. I want to hear them. Let's talk about the topic of the day. And yesterday was, of course, Memorial Day. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. And also with the 100th anniversary of the unveiling of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. That was also yesterday. We've heard for the last couple of years that Confederate monuments represent the worst of American society. They are dedicated to white supremacy and white supremacists and, of course, slavery. They are a constant reminder of these things. And if we just exercise these monuments from our vision, everything in America would get better. And, of course, what, we, what we're told in all this is that these monuments, most of which you know, are now in Richmond, for example, have been taken down, But many of these monuments were constructed in the height of Jim Crow, right? They're built just to symbolize Jim Crow, which, of course, is the 1880s, 90s, early 19-teens, that these monuments are there because Southerners simply wanted to put up monuments to slavery, Jim Crow, white supremacy, whatever you have. And, of course, what historians, quote-unquote, have done is gone out and looked at these dedication speeches And they've said, okay, well, here's the proof. The proof is in the dedication speeches. This is why people were putting these monuments up. And they find references to Anglo-Saxons or, I mean, things like that. And, of course, um, the Julian Carr statement at the Silent Sam dedication ceremony. You've got Adam Dumby out there talking about this now in his book, which I'll get to at some point to review. I haven't forgotten about that. It's going to happen. But so that's, that's proof enough. That that monument was there because of white supremacy. Now, one of the things we miss in all that is that there were a number of Union monuments constructed at the exact same time. 
And these union monuments were also, in many cases, put up and honored white supremacists. In fact, yesterday being Memorial Day, uh, we had uh, you know, ceremonies all over the place, people eating hot dogs and you know, going to ball games and doing all the things, going to the beach or going to the mountains, whatever you like to do on Memorial Day, hanging out at the pool, whatever it is, on your Memorial Day weekend, spending a little quiet time, a little downtime. And Memorial Day became a federal holiday beginning in the 1860s, 1868. Now, we know that before that, of course, there was a Confederate origins of Memorial Day. And I've talked about that on this podcast already. I'm not going to rehash that. But we know that Memorial Day really started in the South. It was called Decoration Day. And it started in Columbus, Georgia. Now, Columbus, Mississippi likes to take uh, credit for that, too. But um, Columbus, Georgia is really the heart of it at Linwood Cemetery in Columbus, Georgia. There's a, there's a Confederate section in that cemetery. Two of them, in fact. But, you know, now you've got David Blight saying that the first Memorial Day was actually in Charleston and it was former slaves at a Memorial Day. That was a one-off event. Okay, there's, there's a little difference in that. These Memorial Day celebrations we do now were intended to be annual celebrations on a particular day. And that particular day was going to honor, at first, the Confederate dead, but... What we also have to remember is that these ladies in the South also put flowers on the graves of Union soldiers, not just Confederate soldiers, but Union soldiers. Then eventually, the Grand Army of the Republic got word of this, and they said, you know what, we need to take this and do it as well. And so that was John Logan. Let me talk about John Logan for a second. And then I'm going to get into Abraham Lincoln, and I'm going to foreshadow something that's going on too behind the scenes at McClanahan Academy. All right, so John Logan was, I think, the third commander of the Grand Army of the Republic. John Logan uh, was a Union Major General during the war. He was from Illinois, Lincoln's home state, and he was from the southern part of Illinois, an area that was known for its uh, resistance to racial equality, just to put it mildly. In fact, in 1853, John Logan, as a member of the Illinois legislature, helped write and ram through the legislature a bill that prohibited black Americans from living in the state. This is John Logan. John Logan, of course, fought for the Union during the war, was, I mean, by all intents and purposes, a good Union general. He was a political appointee, a political general, but he did a good job for the Union. After the war, of course, he is nominated for vice president of the United States, on, uh, in 1884 with the Blaine ticket. James G. Blaine of Maine and John Logan was the vice presidential nominee. John Logan has a statue in Washington, D.C. Here is a guy that was an avid white supremacist. I mean, you can't get more white supremacists than actually pushing through legislation that denied black Americans the ability to live in that state, actually be in the state for more than 10 days. This is Lincoln State. This is 1853. This isn't, you know, 1821 or 1825. This is 1853, eight years before the beginning of the war. Now, Logan would eventually change his mind on these things. Why? Well, because the war is over. And supposedly to his, his biographer says, well, when Logan attended the uh, Charleston Convention in 1860, he saw firsthand the effects of the slave trade and, uh, and slave auctions, and he was horrified by it. He began to change his views on slavery. I don't think that was the case at all. I think this is a biographer playing fast and loose with what was going on. John Logan decided in 1860 
that he was going to side with his home state of Illinois, which what you know what Southerners did. He was going to be where his state was. And, you know, Stephen Douglas did the exact same thing. In fact, Logan spent a lot of time in his post-war career trying to vindicate Douglas and himself in their racial attitudes before the war. Uh, but then Logan figured out that black votes were pretty important for the Republican Party. He became a Republican and um, supposedly had a, an awakening. He became woke, right? He was a 19th century woke. He was woke. He decided what he had thought before was wrong, and so now he's going to be he's going to be all for civil rights and voting rights for former slaves and black Americans. So John Logan gets a pass. Why? His monument is a monument to a white supremacist. You know what else is a monument to a white supremacist? Of course, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., which is now 100 years old. Started construction in 1914 and finished in 1922. We're told that the only reason Confederate monuments were built during this time is because, well... This is, they wanted to enforce Jim Crow. Well, what's going on here with Abraham Lincoln or John Logan, right? I mean, it doesn't get any more, quote-unquote, Jim Crow than John Logan. And yet, he has a monument not only in Washington, D.C., also in Chicago. There's, I mean, he, there's, there's places named after John Logan. John Logan's a pretty important guy. We know about Lincoln. And we know in 1858, just five years after Logan had been part of this bill to prohibit blacks from living in the state of Illinois... Lincoln is on record saying he does not believe in the equality of the races. On record. Now, of course, why is it, and not just that, that white people are superior to black people? This is Abraham Lincoln. So why is it that we're allowed to keep these monuments up, but yet a monument to, say, Stonewall Jackson, who actually took his own time to educate slaves, is taken down? Where is the you know, balance here, Right? Where, I mean, we all know this is hypocritical. We know that at the heart of all of this is a fear of reconciliation. That's it. In fact, the Blight book is, is Race and Reunion, which a lot of these lefties like to cite, is little more than an attack on reconciliation. That's what it is. These people are upset that reconciliation happened, that the Union did not get the Northern government, right? The United States did not go far enough in punishing these traitors in the South. And I'll never forget an exchange I had with a dope who wrote a little article in Time Magazine on the Maryland State Song, which has since been retired. But he talked about it. He said the real problem with the Maryland State Song is it's dissident, right? That was the issue. It wasn't anything about race or anything about slavery. No, it was dissident. You see, these people don't like the fact that Southerners still clung to that original federal republic, even after the war is over. And they talked about that more than anything else in these dedication speeches. They talked about those principles which had made the United States great, which was not race and slavery, by the way. They did talk about race and slavery at times. But what made the United States great was the, was the principle of independence, the Magna Charta, the English Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, this spirit of independence. That's what made America great. And of course, at the heart of that, for under the Constitution, is federalism. The lefties can't stand it because those monuments became symbols of that more than anything else. If we're going to honor Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis and these people are still in our face all the time, that means there's still a spirit of resistance in America to over-oppressive uh, central authority, tyranny. If we're going to honor John C. Calhoun, which is the reading John C. Calhoun class, when you take that class, which I know you're going to, when you take that class, what you're going to get out of it is a firm understanding of what Calhoun considered to be tyranny, which was 
uh, nothing more than numerical majorities. He was afraid of the effect on that on centralization and economy and all kinds of things. You see, at the heart of it all was plundering the minority, the majority plundering the minority. And this was a big deal to Calhoun. All the documents we talk about in that class get into it. But that said, we've got this spirit of reconciliation. And all of these monuments were actually being built within the spirit of reconciliation. In fact, when the Lincoln Memorial is dedicated, you want to know who's there? Well, former Confederate soldiers. Former Confederate soldiers are at the dedication ceremony of the Lincoln, Mo Lincoln Memorial, Lincoln Monument, Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. They're there. In fact, former Union soldiers often went to Confederate monument dedications. It happened all the time. You see, because there was a spirit of reconciliation. We were putting the Union back together. And I want to talk about today a speech that was given at that dedication ceremony for the Lincoln Memorial back in 1922. May 30th, 1922, 100th anniversary was yesterday. And this is a good opportunity to talk about a great book on this man. It's Warren Harding, who gave the dedication address, who was president of the United States at the time. And, of course, uh, Warren Harding has a, has a great book out on Warren Harding now. It's called The Jazz Age President by Ryan Walters. You want to pick it up. I've talked about it on this program. But I want to talk about this speech and go over it a little bit because it's really important because of what Harding says. Now, this is 1922, okay? He says, uh, Somehow my emotions incline me to speak simply as a reverent and grateful American rather than one in official responsibility. I am thus inclined because the true measure of Lincoln is in his place today in the heart of American citizenship. The more than half a century has passed since his colossal service and his martyrdom. In every moment of peril, in every hour of discouragement, whenever the clouds gather, there is the image of Lincoln to rivet our hopes and to renew our faith. Whenever there is a glow of triumph over national achievement, there comes the reminder that but for Lincoln's heroic and unalterable faith in the Union, these triumphs could not have been. Now think about what he's doing in the speech. I'm going to get more into this. The speech is about reconciliation and the union. He gets he, he talks about slavery for a second, and I'm going to I'm going to address that, but most of the speech is about reconciliation and the union. He says no great character in all history has been more eulogized, no towering figure more monumented, no likeness more portrayed. Painters and sculptors portray as they see, and no two see precisely alike. So too is their varied emphasis in the portraiture of words, but all are agreed about the rugged greatness, the surpassing tenderness, the unfailing wisdom of this master martyr. History is concerned with the things accomplished. Biography deals with the methods and the individual attributes which led to accomplishment. The supreme chapter in history is not emancipation, that that achievement would have been exalted through uh, would, would have exalted Lincoln throughout all the ages. The simple truth is that Lincoln, recognized an established order, would have compromised with the slavery that existed. If he could have halted its extension, hating human slavery as he did, he doubtless believed in its ultimate abolition through the developing conscience of the American people. But he would have been the last man in the republic to resort to arms to effect its abolition. Now. Is this what 
the neocons, the Straussians, even the lefties like to run around saying today. Here is the president of the United States, a Republican, by the way, saying, you know what? Yeah, Lincoln hated slavery, but he would not have gone to war to end slavery. He didn't go to war to end slavery. He went to war to save the Union. In fact, he says it. Emancipation was a means to the great end, maintained union and nationality. Here was the great purpose. Here the towering hope. Here the supreme faith. Not emancipation. Not the end of slavery. But the union and nationality. That was Lincoln's primary motivation. Now, last week, I talked about Nicole Hannah-Jones and how she put out a tweet and said, you know, Lincoln didn't go to war to free the slaves. He went to war to save the Union. And she was excoriated for this. I guess Warren Harding is a neo-Confederate. Because here he's saying in 1922, you know what, Lincoln didn't go to war to free the slaves. Yeah, it happened. But that's not what the war was about. The war was about Union and nationality. This monument that I'm standing in front of, this American Parthenon, because that's what it is. We've got Lincoln like Athena. You've got Lincoln sitting in the Parthenon. It's all about union and nationality. Not about emancipation. Not about freeing slaves. None of that. In fact, that was, nah, who cares? It's a great thing. But you know what? The most important thing we got out of this. So is this what the monument means? It's not really about slavery. It's about union and nationality. Well, some people would say, no, no, it's not about that at all. It's about ending slavery. Because that monument was to a man that ended slavery. Of course, he didn't. But what about a monument to white supremacy? Somewhere in there, you have to put these... I mean, you should have quotes about Lincoln saying things about black people, as he did in 1858. But no, no, it's okay to have monuments to Lincoln. Now, some people are uh, starting to question these things. Again, this is the 1619 Project, and the neocons and the Straussians can't stand it because they're calling them out. Hey, you know... Um, that Lincoln guy wasn't really, you know, uh, uh, against racism. In fact, he was pretty racist. That's because everybody was in the 19th century. If we're going to take that out, then we're going to have to tear down the entire fabric of, of American history, right? All these people are going to have to be taken out and replaced. This is exactly what the left wants to do. This is what they're trying to do on a regular basis. They want America to start over around 1975. I've said this at McClanahan Academy. If you take my class on U.S. history, I get into that. But that's their real goal. Harding continues, He treasured the inheritance handed down by the founding fathers. The Ark of the Covenant wrought through their heroic sacrifices and built it in their inspired genius. The Union must be preserved. It was the central thought, the unalterable purpose, the unyielding intent, the foundation of faith. It was worth every sacrifice, justified every cost, steeled the heart to sanction every crimson tide of blood. He's not talking about slavery here. He's talking about the union, this metaphysical union. It has to be preserved, and that's the most important thing. Here was the great experiment, popular government and constitutional union, menaced by greed expressed in human chattels. With the greed restricted and unthreatened, he could temporize. When it challenged federal authority and threatened the union, it pronounced its own doom. In the first inaugural, he quoted and reiterated his own oft-repeated utter utter utterance, excuse me, I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. 
I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Well, there you go. So Harding is saying, hey, this wasn't about slavery. Yeah, he's against it. He thought it would eventually go away, but that's not what he went to war for. He believed in maintaining inviolate the rights of the states, but he believed no less firmly in the perpetuity of the union of the states. The union, having been contracted, could not be dissolved except by consent of all parties to the contract. He recognized the conflicting viewpoints, differing policies, and controverted questions, but there were, no, but there were constitutional methods of settlement, and these must be employed. Right? So he's saying, look, this is... He, he's getting into the fact that Lincoln was not an abolitionist. Lincoln was not an emancipationist except for a war aim. This is the President of the United States in 1922. So again, is this monument a monument to neo-Confederates? Is this monument dedication then a dedication, a neo-Confederate dedication? Because... Uh, as he goes down into the speech, and I'm going to get to the end of this because he brings up the South. He says, This memorial, matchless tribute that it is, is less for Abraham Lincoln than for those of us today and for those who follow after. So he's saying this monument, this is, this is not for him. This is for us. And what is it for? What is it to remind us of? Well, reconciliation. If surpassing compensation would have been in living to have his 10,000 sorrows dissipated in the rejoicings of the succeeding half century, he loved his boys in the army and would have reveled in their, the great part they played in more than half a century of the pursuit of peace and concord restored. How he would have been exalted by the chorus of the Union after the mystic chords were touched by the better angels of our nature how it would have comforted his great soul to know that the states in the Southland joined sincerely in honoring him and have twice since his day joined with all the fervor of his own great heart in defending the flag. How would have softened his anguish to know that the South long since came to realize that a vain assassin robbed of it its most sincere and potent friend when it was prostrate and stricken when Lincoln's sympathy and understanding would have helped to heal the wounds and hide the scars and speed the restoration. How, I mean, the South has come around to this, right? This is all about reconciliation. It's about putting the Union back together. And in 1922, that's what these monuments were there for. Partly. To honor the dead, to talk about the sacrifice, in some cases, to talk about we still have states' rights. We still have a federal republic. We don't have a centralized despotism. But yet, all that put aside, we're still brothers in this union, and we can still go to war against a common enemy, and we can still do things in common for the good of the United States. That was the point. But you see, to the, to the 1619 people, to the Straussians, this is heresy. You can't say that, right? To David Blight, to Eric Foner, I love it when the Straussians cite Eric Foner and the neocons cite Eric Foner because they're essentially signing their own doom, right? Because Eric Foner would want them gone. Eric Foner does not think the people that generally support conservatives in America are worth anything.
How would his love of freedom and justice, this apostle of humanity, would have found his sorrows tenfold repaid to see the hundred millions to whom he bequeathed reunion and nationality, giving of their sons and daughters and all their fortunes to halt the arm march of autocracy and preserve civilization, even as he preserved the Union. Wouldn't he have looked at this United States, reconciled, back together, and thought, this is great. This is the Escott book um, on Lincoln, where he basically surmises that Lincoln was going to try to form a new party. If he had survived, he would have formed a party that would have had people like Alexander Stevens in it. It would have been maybe a more conservative um, Republican party. Maybe, a re- maybe they would put the Whig party back together. So that would have been you know, what Lincoln's goal was at some point. Maybe. I don't know. More, how his great American heart would be a glow to note how resolutely we are going on, always on, holding to constitutional methods, amending to meet the requirements of a progressive civilization, clinging to majority rule properly restrained, which is the only true sovereign of a free people, and working to the fulfillment of the destiny of the world's greatest republic. Fifty-seven years ago, this people gave from their ranks, sprung from their own fiber, this plain man, holding their common ideals. They gave him first to service of the nation in the hour of peril, then to their pantheon of fame. With them and by them, he is enshrined and exalted forever. Today, American gratitude, love, and appreciation give to Abraham Lincoln this lone white temple, a pantheon for him alone. And of course, yeah, now there are other people at this dedication ceremony. President, Former President Taft, now Supreme Court Chief Justice, was the head of the monument uh, organization that had this you know, thing built. Uh, Lincoln's son was there, as was Edward Markham, the very, very famous poet who uh, read a poem that day uh, dedicated to Lincoln. But what we're seeing in the Lincoln Memorial, and I mean, by default, just about any memorial that was produced during this time period, is a spirit of reconciliation. The South is part of the United States. These great principles that made the South fantastic, this, this uh, adherence to limited central government, and uh, the old Anglo-American traditions, that was important, just as important as Lincoln was in putting these sections back together, and the South has recognized how important Lincoln is, and they admire and, and, uh, and honor Lincoln too. This was an important part of the entire process. It's something that David Blight doesn't like. It's something that Eric Foner doesn't like. But John Logan, right, is also a part of this process. You have Union monuments being built, and a lot of these guys had racial views that were not in line with what we believe in terms of racial views today. They are not modern Americans. They held racial views opposite to what most modern Americans think about race. But yet we're not tearing down Abraham Lincoln. We're not tearing down John Logan. We're not doing any of that. Just Confederate monuments. Why? Because it's purely political. You see, if these people were being consistent, Lincoln would have to come down too. So would John Logan. So would any of these people. Now, there are purists out there who believe what I'm saying. Yeah, that's true. That would have to happen. But the problem is, for these purists, is they run into political backlash when you start talking about Jefferson and Washington and others. Well, because if their sin is racism and slavery, then they have to be taken down as well. It has to happen. I've said since 2015, Confederate monuments are the low-hanging fruit. When they're gone, they're going to come after all the other stuff because their goal is not to take down the Confederacy. Their goal is to take down the entire fabric of American history and replace it with their own distorted vision of what America was, what America is, and what America will be. And it is certainly based 
on a very radical definition of, of uh, government and also uh, their own quest for power. This is what it's really all about at the end of the day. When you strip all of it away, it's about power. It's always been about power, and that's what it is. So I wanted to talk about Memorial Day and this Lincoln Memorial and, of course, John Logan and what that is. I should have done it yesterday. I, I just got a little behind. So covering this on Tuesday, the 31st of May. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you tomorrow for the next episode. See you then. <laughs>